Okay, so just before we start officially. Okay. Explain to me Highlands Bunker. Okay, so uh, there's a neighborhood. Well, <clears throat> the status quo in this state is called the Delaware Way. So it's like the corporate conservative sort of um, way that things are done. Yeah. Um, we have we have very sort of conservative Democrat. I mean, uh, Joe Biden's from here. Tom sure. Car- Tom Carper, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's a neighborhood uh, in the city that is a very sort of Tony uh, wow. neighborhood. Chris Coons, the senator, lives in that neighborhood. Our mayor lives in that neighborhood, and it's actually right next to the neighborhood I live in. So, uh-huh. so the conceit of the show is that we're uh, we're we're behind enemy lines in a bunker plotting against the <laughs> Delaware Way. That's great. So that's actually that's that's what it is. Hello, friends and comrades. We're back again in Highlands Bunker. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines in the belly of the beast. Uh, as you as you all know, uh, one of the folks that we always have our eye on here uh, in Highlands is uh, is our Senator Chris Coons. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, he's really stepped in it. Uh, he's made some remarks about uh, diversity being uh, disruptive to the Senate. He has uh, advocated for potential war with Iran on Fox News. Uh, but the other thing he's done just recently is uh, at the World Series when at the Washington ballpark when Donald Trump was booed, uh, the next day our senator went on uh, MSNBC and um, was very displeased at the reception that uh, President Trump received. And he he said that uh, he was a quote traditionalist. Um, so tonight, uh, what I wanted to do is talk about another kind of tradition, a radical tradition. Uh, and we have a very very special guest with us. Uh, he is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. He's the acclaimed author of uh, Thomas Paine: The Promise of America, The Fight for Four Freedoms. And his newest book, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. I'm very happy to uh, have him here, Professor Harvey J.K. Thank you. I'm, I only regret I'm not down in the bunker with you, but out here in Green Bay, Wisconsin. <laughs> well, you're, you're, always, uh, you're always welcome in Wilmington anytime. Our door's always open. Thanks. Did you get a, have you gotten any snow yet? Funny you should ask. <laughs> so I was, away, I was away the last time. It was a couple of weeks ago. In fact... I think it was I was in New York with uh, with Michael Brooks and Sam Cedar doing some of their shows. Um, this morning woke up and there was just a bit of snow falling. And by lunchtime, we had about four inches. But it was a really ugly snow where a lot of cars ended up in ditches and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we got our first snow. I'm hoping it'll be gone by the weekend off the ground. But who knows? Who knows? Well, I, I wanted to tell you before we get started, I wanted to tell you a story because um, this was the first time I knew that I, I had to have you onto the show because it was just the, the, the starkness of it was, was kind of crazy. So downtown um, in Wilmington, uh, across the street from a complex of buildings that used to be the world headquarters of DuPont. Uh, ah. They aren't anymore, but there's three big buildings there. Uh, one's the Brandywine building, used to be called the DuPont building. Uh, mm. 
I guess what FDR would call the econ- uh, the economic royalty of the country in the Gilded Age. Yep. You bet. Uh, and across the street from that building, there's a plaza, like a little park, uh, the H.B. DuPont Plaza. And uh, if you walk through there on your way to the Y, you'll notice at the other end, past the fountain, there's a big bronze uh, piece of art uh, commemorating the uh, World War II. Uh, and it says, uh, to those who have given their life uh, or served from 41 to 45, there's this big bronze sculpture. And across the, ba- the base of the sculpture in a circle says, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom, of, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And that I thought, is. right in the H.B. DuPont Park is a is a, uh, uh, a statue to the Four Freedoms. I thought that nothing could be more two ends of the spectrum than that. I have to tell you, I didn't know that. I didn't know about this place. Yes. How, when, do you know when it was put up? I, I don't. I, 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 uh, I mean, I think it's at, at, at least that plaza there because it's it's two streets sort of come together and make a make a triangle you know oh. it's a diagonal and so yeah. there's a big plaza there hb dupont plaza and there's a uh, there's a world war ii sort of statue or memorial and it has the four freedoms in the base that's fantastic i you know what if you're ever down there or soon I, i'd love if you could take a picture of that base and send it to me i, I would love it because i tried to get, to get all the references to these kinds of things that i could and i didn't know at all about this one yeah, I will send it to you because it is uh it's it's actually very near here. Um it's on the bus route downtown and I was actually just there today because I went to the Y. So yeah, I, I I think I I will be able to send you some pictures of it. Great. I really pre- I would really really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I'll tweet, I'll tweet them widely and give you credit. <laughs> thank you very much. Um so uh radicalism really at the at the moments that you uh note in your new book, it was radicalism that got us through as a country, some of the most existential situations uh, that there's been probably the most existential yeah. situations that there've been. And the first one was uh, at the beginning at the revolution uh, and with pain. Um, and we also have your book here, the uh, biography of pain promise of America. Yeah. That's right yeah. Thomas Paine and the promise of America, which actually just so people know, is more than a biography. It is actually I retell the, the the American Revolution and the story of America in terms of Paine's presence, Paine's influence, Paine's shaping influence from the beginning all the way through you know twentieth century. Yeah, and what what's fascinating is that uh, not that he's been written out of history so much, but folks forget that at the time of seventeen seventy five, seventeen seventy six. The real rallying point was the pamphlet Common Sense, right? Uh, and the the contents therein were uh, extremely important uh, to the revolution. And um, maybe you could speak to that. Well, what's interesting is this: that when Paine arrived in America from England, which was in very late 1774, and he only really begins to experience America in the new year, January of 75, America itself, the colonies, the 13 colonies, are already in a state of rebellion, which which the conservative Edmund Burke back in England was convinced was already a revolution. Though in fact, what distinguished the American colonial rebellion is that they believed that they were fighting for the rights of Britons, 
that they they thought that they were being left out of the rights that freeborn Britons had secured over the generations and centuries. So when Payne first arrived, he's utterly impressed by the fact that Americans have already essentially risen up and chucked out a lot of British authority. And they've set up their own committees to self-govern. Uh, Payne is in Philadelphia, not far from where you are, right? You know, from from Wilmington, you might say. The Del- it was that part of the Delaware Valley. So, so Payne is just really impressed, not only by the, what he sees as the resources and promise of America, but also by the fact that Americans themselves have staged the, the makings of a revolution. And it it impresses upon him the possibility that Americans had it in themselves to number one pursue a revolution for independence, but even more importantly, and this is the key thing about Paine that is not often talked about in the schools, you can imagine, is that Paine believed that they had the, they had it, that we Americans had it in our power to start the world over again by creating a democratic republic as an example to the world that working people, common folk, ordinary people could govern themselves that they didn't need kings, they didn't need aristocrats, they didn't need big property holders, they didn't need priests of any sort to tell them what to do. So Americans basically were shown by pain, as if common sense, this great pamphlet was a mirror, were shown who they were and what they were capable of accomplishing. And of course, you know, Philadelphia is is at the heart of all this. It's essentially the capital at the time of the American, you know, the British uh, colonies. So Payne becomes truly the original founder. He, he's the visionary and the guy who calls Americans to, to stand for not only British rights, but for human rights. And the revolution ensues. It, the pamphlet itself came out in January 76. Within a few months, 120,000 copies are distributed. Uh, newspapers are plagiarizing it and, you know, I'm, well, you know picking it up and running it without, uh, without paying anyone for it. Um, by the end of the revolution, probably a half a million copies had been distributed. But more importantly, is that it was the greatest bestseller in American history for generations. And I believe, in, and this is what I argue in that book, that pain made Americans radicals. And that in a sense, we've remained radicals ever since. And we could talk about you know, where, where we may have gone wrong or, or how we may have forgotten who we are. But that's the role that pain plays I believe in the revolution and in the making of generations of American life. So Paine was sort of the founder of that American radicalism. Would you be able to sort of take us through the next 100, 200 years and sort of like into FDR and sort of where that leads us today? Okay. Well, the first thing I'll say is that I had went out, I set out to write that book as the story of Paine's life and labors. And then the 200-year effort to suppress his memory. You know, the powerful, the property, the prestigious, the pious did everything they could to literally to suppress the memory of Paine's arguments. Because it was not only in common sense, but later in the crisis papers, later during the French Revolution, the rights of man, um, also in Age of Reason, and then even in Agrarian Justice, his last major pamphlet, where he actually is becomes, if you like, the godfather of the whole idea of social democracy. And so in the course of, of the 1770s all the way through into the 1790s, Paine is the radical pen of the revolution and the most radical, uh, the, the greatest radical of the entire Atlantic world at that time. 
So you can imagine that those who had a stake in holding on to slavery, those who had a stake in holding on to inequality and the power that accrues to those who are on top, that they had little desire to see Paine celebrated as, as a hero, as a champion. So the idea was I would tell the story of the suppression of his memory, which continued for 200 years. Conservatives of every sort literally sought to to remove him from any kind of historical reference in the schools, to deny any possibility of building a monument to his memory, to literally suppress his memory. And they did that not only by sitting on committees and boards that, that would suppress his memory, but also by Sunday sermons, in books, and their own ways, they would literally crap all over his story, his life, his labors. You know, they would actually tell tell the tale that that if young women were to read common sense, sorry, to, to read common sense, but even more importantly, Age of Reason, say his critique of organized religion, that they would they would faint. That if villages became too wrapped up in the ideas of Thomas Paine, an earthquake might ensue, or the community might suffer yellow fever. This is I'm not even exaggerating. That was the case. So for generations, they did everything they could, and the story that everyone had bought into on the left was that Paine had been forgotten. Well. Oddly enough, when I then sat down to do the research, and I won't go through the whole story of all the research, what I discovered, and it was already in, in books, you know, many books had, had recorded these instances that I'm now referring to. In every generation, the most progressive forces, whether they were free thinkers, religious free thinkers, or abolitionists, or women's rights advocates, or, you know, labor unionists, socialists, populist progressives, I'm laying out the entire story of American left left uh, activity, that in every generation, those who had wanted to lay claim to the revolution, redeem the memory of the revolution, when they reached back to lay claim to it, it's Thomas Paine who they grabbed hold of, or they, whom they harnessed in his works and his ideas. And may, he became, if you like, the, the saint of these movements. And no one had realized this. They, everyone assumed that he had been forgotten. So in other words, he was never forgotten. Progressives, radicals, liberals, socialists, every single generation of the left, as we would think of the left, or of radicals and progressives and so on, they laid hold of Thomas Paine. And in fact, Paine's works were never out of print. They were always in print in the United States. And they held not only sort of lectures to celebrate his memory, they held huge dinner parties with drinking and dining over and over again. I discovered that he was always here. He was always a presence. So the way in which Americans reminded themselves of who they were and what they were capable of doing was to lay hold of Thomas Paine and advance his memory. Now, we see this not only from the bottom up in those struggles, but Abraham Lincoln was a young Paineite, both politically and religiously, though he, he his friends persuaded him to put, push that aside for public purposes or he'd never be elected to anything. Similarly, in the 20th century, you mentioned Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, at that key moment when America is now at war, he lays hold of Thomas Paine's memory and talks about Paine's words, these are the times of Chimen's souls. Anyhow, I mean, there's a whole story that, 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 that I retell in that, in that book, or I tell for the first time in that book. But here's the point, really, is that, and you pointed this out yourself, Whenever we have faced an existential crisis, whether it was in the 1770s, whether it was in the 1860s with the American, with the Civil War, you know, the, the future of the Union, 
whether it was in the 1930s confronting the Great Depression or for that matter in the 1940s confronting the global fascists of Germany, Italy and Japan, somehow we have found it in ourselves not simply to rise to the occasion to sustain, to create an America independent of Britain, to sustain the Union, to defeat the, the forces and energies of the Great Depression and to defeat fascism. It's that we did so by turning America and then the United States into a more free, equal and democratic place than it had ever been before. The creation of the makings of a democratic republic, the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of slaves who were themselves involved in their own emancipation, the empowerment of labor during the New Deal years of the 1930s, over and over again, what I came, what I came to see by way of the Payne book, by way of the book on the Four Freedoms, and on reflection is that we have forgotten, not only that we have this great radical tradition that I've sort of outlined, but we've also forgotten the fact that at heart we are radicals, and we've shown that in those moments when push came to shove, you might say. Yeah, and that's, that's what's fascinating is that um, at each moment, uh, it's almost like uh, when your back's against the wall, you need to be able to inspire people and give people motivation uh, to, to fight an existential sort of battle. Right. But then over time, as you said, with pain, and, and uh, I think you've made the same critique with, with Lincoln and FDR too, um, there's this idea that once that's done, history then sort of removes little by little the radical nature of what they did. Uh, for, exa well, for example, Lincoln... Let's be blunt. It's, we're talking about the powers that be, the ruling classes, the elites do everything in their power right. to make sure that if they can't suppress the memory, you can't suppress the memory of Lincoln, you can't suppress the memory of Roosevelt, that you want to, in many ways, remove from those experiences and those figures' lives and those who em empowered their presidencies. You want to remove the radical story from it. Yeah, for Lincoln, for example, becomes... Uh, you know, the, the, the great negotiator, everything's a deal, it's a team of rivals, and yeah. really it was, it's sort of like uh, what really happened is he had radical ideas and was able to execute them, but then it becomes sort of like uh, he just managed it like you would manage, uh, you know, any sort of technocratic thing, and it's not that at all. Right. Yeah, in fact, this is, here's an important, a couple of important things about that. The, there was a, there's this famous quote, there's this quote, I've got it sitting here somewhere. Um, it's by Rexford Tugwell, and it goes, we are a lucky people. When we needed leaders, we had them. Washington, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt. Now, here's the thing. I, I don't know if we were lucky. I know luck plays a part in, 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 in most things. But it's also the case that Washington, for all of his aristocratic bearing, okay, and his conservative political instincts, he actually becomes a revolutionary not because he simply wants to command an army that the British had refused to allow him to do as a, as a colonial officer. It's also the case that his own men, having read Common Sense, as he acknowledges in a letter to a friend, he actually says, Common Sense, Payne's revolutionary pamphlet, is working a wondrous change in the minds of the men. And that's the moment when he declares for the revolution, not simply for the rebellion. He declares for independence. Okay, so it's from the bottom up that, that Washington is met, turned into the revolutionary general, okay? In Lincoln's case, Lincoln already had the radical desire to abolish slavery, but he knows that, uh, that he has to hold on to the Union even to make that possible. 
And then during the, the course of the Civil War, early on, what's really significant is slaves themselves, are come, as the Union Army advances and then, and then retreats and advances, slaves on the plantations in whatever states the, the Union Army has been moving into in the South, those folks are upping and leaving the plantations in their hundreds and then thousands and tens of thousands to make their way to the Union lines to demand that they want to contribute to the war effort too. So what happens is their self-emancipation empowers Lincoln to come up with the idea of the Emancipation Proclamation and empowers him then to enlist their forces in the Union Army so that 250,000 African-Americans end up serving in the Union ranks during the Civil War. So it's what, what's interesting is we see Washington and Lincoln being empowered from below by American working people and all their diversity, and they then in turn empower the radical change. I mean, it's a great story, American history, if it's told in that fashion, it becomes inspiring and not merely tragic. And then with the case of Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, Roosevelt had decidedly progressive ideas, but, there, but he always said, I can't go too far out in front of Americans themselves. So what happens is that in the 1930s, the pursuit of the New Deal is made possible by the, by the organization of labor the, and the empowerment of labor by FDR himself. So, and so the question here, if we're going to talk contemporary politics, is we're in an existential crisis right now. And I'm not just talking Donald Trump. I'm talking about the fact that we have endured 45 years of class war from above, okay? to the point where labor unions have been under siege and, and, and the statistics speak to the degree to which labor has been smashed. Um, voting rights have been under siege and we've seen the degree to which it's not just the fact of the Voting Rights Act, it's also the, and how it has been, if you like, sort of devastated by Supreme Court decisions. It's also the degree to which there's redistrict, redistricting in many states to make sure Republicans get elected. I mean, re, also setting up uh, uh, precincts and enacting you know, voter ID laws to disempower young people, students, from being able to vote when they're off at college. I mean, we've seen all of this. Similarly, this, this perverse desire on the part of Republicans to not merely strip women of their, their rights to control their own body, their willingness to sort of enact laws that might involve probing women's bodies. I mean, this is 45 years of this. You're, I don't know how old you are, but you may well have been. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually uh, 45. 45. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm the perfect uh, vehicle for this. Yes, right. It all started when I was born, unfortunately. Exactly. You're, it's not your fault, but you've, you've grown up in the context of 45 years of class war from above. Whereas my birth in 1949 to the, to the point of the mid-70s, and I was only then in my, what, my tw in somewhere in my 20s, is the fact that I had assumed that we were on this great trajectory towards a greater social democratic uh, life in America. You could never have persuaded me in 1970 that we would not have had national health care by 1980. Would not, I would never have believed you. And what have we seen? We've seen even Medicare and Medicaid under siege. So what I'm getting at is we're in this existential crisis. We need to take hold of our history, remember who we are, and it's our time to use Bernie Sanders' argument to create a political revolution in this country. Yeah, you, you, you've used a, a quote before or a concept before about really the, mo the political moment is about not about finding a person you think can go do something,
but about finding the person who can inspire what we all can do together. That's actually the the radical idea at its at its core is the the not me us sort of yes it's it's, yes. More, it's more me it's it's i'm letting you all know that you can look to your left and right and you you guys can all do it together we can do this together uh it doesn't really you know it's not some plan i'm going to concoct and execute uh it's not me going to go do going to go to the white house and make everything better it's all of us together demanding that we get you know, social justice and get the right, as you said, it, it would have been unbelievable to you not to have uh, single payer national health care by 1980. And we still don't. But we all right. have to we all have to sort of reclaim uh, that agency and that that radical spirit and do it together. Yeah. Well, in fact, that question of agency is really important. So this is it. Let, I, there are two things I want to I'd like to respond to. OK. One most immediately, let's just talk about the healthcare question most immediately. But then let me come back to that idea of we, we need a leader who, who doesn't just tell us they want to be our champion, they want to fight for us. We need a leader who will inspire the fight in us. But let's come back to that one. So in 1943 and 44, 85% of Americans wanted national health care. I mean, I, I, people don't believe me when I say that, but it, it's all there. Roosevelt, while he was in the pre, in his, during the war years, had asked these uh, national opinion research people at Princeton to run national surveys. He wanted to know what Americans wanted to do after the war, what they want to accomplish, what should, what should the public good be about? And they asked him this, a group of questions. And the, mo- the one that really stuck out, especially given our failure to, to secure it, is 85% of Americans wanted national health care. And I'll also add, that ever since then, never to my knowledge, has the percentage of Americans desiring national health care in some fashion been under 50%. Never. And similar, and in the 1970s, in the wake of the, 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 the radicalism of the 60s and the tragedy of Vietnam, unfortunately, the fact is that the majority of Americans wanted more social democracy not unlike that which had been achieved in the 30s under Roosevelt and in the 60s by way of Lyndon Johnson in his better moments and even Richard Nixon, bizarrely enough, in his better moments. They wanted the kinds of things like national health care. They wanted to expand opportunities by empowering young people, by empowering Americans with the wherewithal to pursue opportunities. So anyhow, that's the, the first thing, okay? And the other thing I wanted to say is that when I look, you know, I'm old enough. To, I actually can't believe I'm actually I can reflect on these things, and things think things seem to make even more sense now than they ever did. And I don't think it's just age. I think it's after a while you come to see things repeating themselves. And I remember back when, let's go back to Clinton. Say first Clinton, Bill Clinton. And I remember Bill Clinton ran on a, a campaign on. You know, he was the guy from Hope, Hope, Arkansas, and all he talked about was change, change, change. Right. Well, maybe you don't remember, but believe me. I actually do remember. That was the first uh, the, the first uh, presidential election I voted in was two months after I, I moved to my freshman dorm uh, at the University of Delaware. So I, uh, I I voted in that one. Okay, excellent. So I remember, you know, I, I mean, I, I any of us on the left had to have had serious reservations about, about Clinton. I mean, it's just, you know, he, he was anything but a lefty. But the fact is... The fact is that he did talk about change. Now, when he when he was moving to D.C., he had decided 
He was going to reenact Thomas Jefferson's journey from Monticello in Virginia to the, to the national capital. And he began his bus, tri bus trip from Monticello to D.C. And I think they even tried to call it the People's Inauguration, something like that, out on the National Mall. And I listened to his speech, and I remember thinking, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And I'll tell you what I mean. So he's giving his inaugural address, and everyone can go back and look at it if they wish. And he says something like, as Thomas Jefferson said, in every generation, Americans will need change, some kind, you know, some change. Well, that's not what Jefferson said. For all of his sins, Jefferson said, in every generation, Americans will need some rebellion. Okay, so whereas, and Clinton, of course, proved my fears correct when, first of all, he pursued North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Then he turned around and created a secret healthcare commission, a pri sorry, a closed door healthcare commission headed by Hillary Clinton. Okay, so over and over again, it was this top-down idea of Clinton, leave it to me, we'll take care of everything. It wasn't change we needed, it was a little rebellion. Well, then, similarly, with, if, we, if we move ahead, say, to the Obama inauguration, his inauguration, which, by, which was, you know, I mean, look, in one sense, it was an utterly inspiring occasion. Two million people turned out on the National Mall to, hear, to see and hear the first inauguration of a black president. I was there. It was incredible. Yeah, I was, I was in D.C. I was in, you know, the weirdest part is I was in D.C. at the time because I had been, I, can I, I don't, not everyone knows, I wrote two speeches for one of the pre-inaugural parties, one of these big extravaganzas. I happened to have become friends with Norman Lear, the TV producer and all that. And he asked me to write two speeches, a speech for him because he was hosting this big, you know, party, pre-inaugural party, and two for Jamie Foxx. And so I wrote these things, and I, but oddly did you, enough, did you write some jokes for Jamie Fox? I, w if, I wish I could write jokes. I'll tell you, <laughs> that would have been, been good. Actually, it was it was a funny occasion in any case, because they had Maroon Five there, they had John Legend there, they had Jessica Alba there. I mean, it was one of these kinds of extravaganzas, and then to hear people giving my words and you know as a speech were kind of fun. Anyhow, to come back to this, so I was in D.C., but I I wasn't on the mall. I, I was at my sister's place in Bethesda, Maryland, and I'm, but I'm hearing the words. I'm hearing the words, and I heard Obama speak words that I recognized, and because he said, as 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 the you know as Washington or as the father of our country, something like that, uh, ordered his men to hear these words when everything looks so bleak uh, before they cross the Delaware. There you go, before they cross the Delaware to, to you know to fight the Hessians at Trenton. And the words, I'm listening, I said, oh my goodness, that's, those are Thomas Paine's words, is what I'm thinking, from the first crisis paper. And I thought, I should check this. So I quickly run to my sister's computer, and I check my email as well, and it was a message from Bill Moyers saying, Harvey, did I just hear what I thought I hear, heard? And I said, oh my God, I guess I was right. My instincts were correct. What I heard was correct. However, if you listen to the whole speech, first of all, he never mentioned Thomas Paine's name, but more importantly... He doesn't talk about the radicalism of the revolution. He, and he doesn't even talk about, he doesn't talk anything about the radical tradition in America. And then to top it all off, he holds us all accountable for the recession that's underway. All of us are accountable, not, not the money changers and the, and the Wall Street bankers. And I thought, 
I sure as hell am not accountable for this, other than the fact that I wasn't part of a movement to, you know, of the last 40 years to, you know, at that point, 35, 30 years. I, I was astounded by the fact that he turned his back on even some of his earlier speeches when he was running for Senate, I guess it was, and literally became this, you know, the president who, who had nothing to say to the American spirit. That that was disconcerting. The, the guy who would run a campaign telling young people, yes, we can, basically said, it's all your fault in his inaugural address. And I thought, uh-oh, here we go again. It was like Clinton all over again. And, you know, I mean, the trick, but then we get, then we get 2016. Sorry, am I going on too long? No, this is why we're, this is why we're doing it. Okay, 2016, 15, 16. Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, right? Running for the nomination. Hillary Clinton launches her campaign at the FDR Four Freedoms Park in New York City. And I and I was at first I'm really impressed. I thought, wow, this is great, because I was the historical advisor to the creation of the park. So I was really thrilled. But first of all, she never told anyone what the Four Freedoms were, right? Why would you have it there if you weren't going to mention what the four exactly? Well, maybe she's trying to wrap herself in in the memory of Franklin Roosevelt, but not going to tell us the most important words. I mean, who knows, right? But then it's a it's an occasion in which it's I want to be your champion. Okay, this is Hillary Clinton. She's going to fight for us. And I kept saying, no, no, go on, go on, talk about needing to inspire the fight, in, and didn't happen. It was a top-down, it was Bill Clinton in Hillary Clinton. It was the same kind of thing. And then, then Bernie Sanders, and by the way, this is going to be a critique of the guy who I voted for. Bernie Sanders, I kept thinking, Bernie, you're practically the younger brother of FDR, given the kinds of things you're calling for, okay? Why don't you just come out and talk about the Four Freedoms or the Economic Bill of Rights? Finally, in November of 2015, he goes to Georgetown University and does, in fact, call forth the memory of Franklin Roosevelt and the need for us to pursue the creation of an economic bill of rights. Now, that was great. And I thought, okay, here we go. This is it. And then within weeks, he's back on the campaign trail and he drops the rhetoric. He drops the historical references altogether and he goes back to, to praising and celebrating Scandinavia. Now look, I got nothing against Scandinavia, okay? More power to the Danes, the Norwegians, the Swedes, and those who aren't exactly Scandinavian, but the Finns. More power to them, okay? But Bernie abandoned the very thing that had literally empowered him at a key moment. And of course, in the first debate between Bill and, uh, between Hillary and Bernie, Hillary says, we're not Denmark. And Bernie didn't come back and say, but we are America. And he could have done that. And he, he just failed. Okay. Now, even if he couldn't have won the nomination because the, the Clinton machine was so locked, so powerful, the fact is he could have created a narrative, a narrative of the American progressive, or if, as I prefer, radical tradition that went from Payne to Lincoln, but especially FDR in the greatest generation. And he didn't create the narrative. So in essence, he, he, he failed himself and us by not doing that. However, now we're in 2019. We're running now again. And Bernie must have, something happened between then and now 
and he really came to understand it. Last time he inspired under 50-year-olds turned out for Bernie. I mean, it was so impressive in 2016. But this time he's learned it's not only a matter of impressing and inspiring, it's also a matter of giving people a narrative and a vision. And he, this time he's really, I think, embraced FDR and really pulled the Economic Bill of Rights in as a centerpiece of the campaign. So I say that I'm voting for the guy who not only wants to fight for us, but inspires the fight in us. Well, this is a uh, this is a Bernie bunker, as I've told people, and that's <clears throat> we've been trying to sort of make that same argument and sort of differentiate him from everybody else. And sort of in those terms, um, he's talking about inspiring us. He's talking about building a movement to make change that will it, that, that that will th- sort of change the context of things and put us in a whole different Right. Sort of situation. So, yeah, that we're 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 trying to make the same things to that end. Let me let me read this, because this this was something I I thought maybe you could reflect on and and tell me what you think of it. This was a a quote uh, recently, I think this week uh, from our 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 great friend Pete Buttigieg. (laughs) So let's see what you think of this. And this is him sort of talking about um, talking about Bernie and FDR in and critiquing sort of what we're talking about. So it it plays into this construct that says it's not bold unless you alienate a lot of people. I just don't think that's true. I mean, the amazing thing about this moment is that we're living, uh, that we're living in is that we have a majority for incredibly bold policy reforms. And if you look a lot at the movement of the United States, uh, we've undertaken bold reforms. I'm thinking about the new deal which best approximates some of what we're trying to do domestically today. There was not always consensus, but it was negotiation. It was process. Uh, it was not about, uh, excuse me, it was not just smashing everybody who disagrees. Well, I not know what the fuck he's talking about. So let me. Let's, I, okay. I, I'm glad we're, we're on the same, we're on the same uh, okay. wavelength here. Let, let's think about this for a moment. There, I, look, my, my book, the new book, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, is not take hold of our history, let's have a good deal, let's make a good, let's have a great negotiation. When existential crises have presented themselves, when mortal crises have presented themselves, we did not suspend who we were, we remembered who we were, and here's, here's what happened. So Roosevelt's elected in 1932, and he's laid out, speech by speech, what essentially will become the New Deal of the 1930s. And that included included making a point of speaking of workers' rights, made it a point of speaking of the need for what he called old age pensions or social security. It required mobilizing people to address the environment because FDR himself, by the way, grew up in a rural area up in New York State. And it was imperative to address questions of soil erosion, to plant trees, which he was already doing as governor of New York. The idea also was to harness American resources, to create jobs, to create electrical power for people. Now, all of that, admittedly, is the creation of the New Deal. But here's the thing. When he becomes president, at first, he tries to arrange those compromises, if you like. The National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which, in, in essence, empowers not only workers to organize unions, it also empowers corporations basically to operate like like cartels, like trusts, like in, in a way that that... The Constitution by that time, it pretty much said, was was unacceptable. So here's the thing. Roosevelt, in 1934, having, if you like, lifted people's spirits 
win the, the Democrats and Rosa win even more seats in the House because of the proposals that he's advanced. But let's go a step further and remember this. American working people wanted more than Roosevelt was doing in those first couple of years. And he knew that if he was going to win election next time, he was going to have to fulfill the kinds of promises that he had made on the campaign trail. And it's in 1935 that he moves to secure the creation of Social Security and signs on to Robert Wagner's National Labor Relations Act, which guarantees the right of work, not only guarantees the right of workers to, to organize and collectively bargain, it says the federal government will stand behind them in their efforts to do so. So in other words, what we find is as workers began to mobilize and organize all the more with Roosevelt's presidency, not unlike, as I was saying, with Lincoln and the slaves who were escaping their plantations, they push Roosevelt to not only to do what he first promised he might do, but to go even further than he originally promised. And in fact, the 1930s is in its own way a small, it, it was a political revolution. And people's lives were radically transformed in the 1930s. And the American landscape was, was radically transformed. A lot, look, historians recognize this, but they don't remind Americans of all of this. So when Americans think of the New Deal, probably what they think of is top-down government programs that lifted people up. What they really also need to remember is the degree to which Americans themselves, working people, mobilized, by the way, not just white working class men, African Americans as well, Latinos as well. Moreover, women were organizing a national housewives movement, a vast movement. And these forces sort of around the labor movement itself push Roosevelt to do what he may well have aspired to, but hadn't actually imagined himself doing. So, you know, it's this Buttigieg, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's, he's propagating the myth that serves the interests of the ruling class. Yeah, that's it. And and, and I uh, we've mentioned in here before because he had a, a, a famous uh, sort of uh, historian and translator father um, who was a Gramsci scholar. I knew I, by the way, was have been a Gramsci scholar myself. And when I realized that this was the son of that fellow, I kept thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the apple at this point did fall fairly far from that tree. Yeah, it, it, it must have, um, you know, when you. Th- when you put uh, sort of Roosevelt's accomplishments in those terms, uh, how he sort of set the table in the late 20s about what he wanted to accomplish, as it started rolling, he was able to you know, sort of be pushed by a groundswell, a grassroots movement of a diverse group of people and, and, you know, and, and execute on what was you know, maybe the most important uh, social program and, and like you said political revolution in the country at least in the 20th century you know actually can i it's a really interesting little story that sort of exemplifies what, I, what we're talking about so does the name a philip randolph mean anything to you yeah the pullman porter guy the, the uh, labor well, pullman porter philip randolph, the, pre, the the head of the brotherhood of sleeping car porters yeah so he was the greatest black labor leader and civil rights leader up until you know obviously uh, martin luther king and civil rights but it was probably in the course of the 20th century, the, the most significant of the labor civil rights figures. And A. Philip Randolph, who had who was, you know, stayed inside of the American Federation of Labor with, during the 1930s, he decided after he heard Franklin Roosevelt's For Freedom speech in January 41, 
that the time was right to make real demands on the Roosevelt administration. Because as the, as the defense effort, which would later become a war effort, was revving up, as Roosevelt had just declared the imperative of envisioning the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, Randolph said, well, now's the time for us to demand a greater equality in America. So he launches what comes to be called the March on Washington movement in that spring. And, and, he, and he organizes this, uh, th this movement because the brother of the sleeping car porters, these African-American porters on the Pullman cars, they're covering the whole country. And every city they stop in, they're mobilizing churches, they're mobilizing black fraternities and sororities. So this movement is, is growing quickly. And, and, and uh, Randolph announces that he's going, they are going to march in Washington in June of that year, 41. 10,000 African-Americans will come to Washington to demand greater presence in the defense industries, the integration of the defense industries. And when Roosevelt hears this, he's worried. He's not worried about African-Americans. He's worried about what Southern whites might do to 10,000 African-Americans. And we shouldn't forget that in the 1930s into the 40s, Washington, D.C. is a segregated city. Woodrow Wilson the Democrat segregated Washington, as was Virginia and, and so on. So, okay. So Franklin asks Eleanor to speak to A. Philip Randolph. Randolph had already been to the White House. He, he and Eleanor were friends. And Eleanor says, look, you know, we're worried about the violence that might ensue. Is there any way we can, you know, talk you out of this? And Randolph says, no. Now, I don't know if, if Eleanor really expected to change his mind, but she comes back to Franklin and says, there's no dissuading him. They're going to march. So Roosevelt invites A. Philip Randolph to the White House, along with Walter White, who was the head of the National Association of the, for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. And he, he, they're there in the Oval Office, and he basically says to them, so I understand you're going to bring, ten, you're going to bring your march to Washington. And he said, um, how many people are you planning on bringing? And Randolph, now that the movement has grown and grown and grown, says 100,000. And Roosevelt leans back and he says, well, I guess we ought to do something. And he agrees to sign into as a federal, you know, what they call executive order. An executive order that says that the defense industries must hire more black workers and give them jobs above that of sweeping the floor. And he then signs a second order, which says they're going to create a fair employment practice commission to oversee the first executive order. Now, this is this great moment, and Randolph, Randolph leaves, okay? Now, what comes to be understood is that what Roosevelt needed, Randolph says, Roosevelt needed me in the White House. He, Randolph actually believed Roosevelt would, would, would wanted to do what Randolph asked of him. But what he needed, Roosevelt, was the threat that he could then tell Congress and others, I had no choice. Did you want 100,000 African-Americans marching in Washington? In other words, it's what Roosevelt's essentially saying, as Lyndon Johnson did with Martin Luther King, I agree with you. Now make me do it. In other words, you've got to, it's got to be a push. So when Ro Randolph leaves, he sent, writes a letter to a relative and he says, I knew as soon as I was going into the Oval Office that we would walk away 
with a victory. But Roosevelt needed to be publicly pushed because he couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't have pulled it off. So, you know, it's like we've got to understand that maybe in some ways Obama failed us, but equally we may have failed him because we didn't just, we didn't march. We didn't make it a point of demanding action from him. I think Bernie has the idea. In 2016, I think it was Anderson Cooper had him in some kind of town hall thing, and somebody said, so how are you going to get anything done if the Republicans are still so strong in the Congress? How are you going to get it done? He says, well, that's where the American people have to step forth. They've got to be outside the window, making it clear exactly what they want, and the power is in their hands. So it's, you know, I, I think Bernie's come a long way. I, I may have left the, the question we started with, but, but I think we're at that moment where we have to remember who we are and we have to recognize that we're in the face of, of a crisis that's unprecedented in our lifetimes. Yeah, Bernie, Bernie has called himself the organizer in chief uh, because he understands that, uh, you know, that's how these things are going to happen. He needs yeah. to organize and inspire that push to, to, to that's constantly there. I guess that's where I would fault Obama because, yes, um, certainly, you know, there was no large movement to push him on a lot of the the early things that he may or may not have wanted to do. Yeah, uh, yeah but he, he pieces, certainly didn't inspire. Yeah. He 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 worked very hard to sort of uh, to sort of there was a little bit of rhetoric saying that he needed, you know, some sort of mandate. But he worked very hard, actually, to kind of lull people to sleep. Well, they they demobilized. So his campaign had an organizing, like, platform as a part of the campaign, and there was a very specific effort among a lot of the people yes. at the top, maybe not him specifically, but to shut down all that grassroots activism. Then right. in 2009 or 2010, they defund ACORN, which then destroys organized even further. So it's not like he was really trying that hard, but... Yeah, that, that group organizing for America. I don't know when exactly. Yeah, it was, it was Obama <laughs> for America, and then organizing, or it got sucked into that, and, it, and then it, then it became the DNC, basically. Yeah, and then it just became a, an arm of the party. Yeah, and so there, you know, whatever opportunity was there to build off of the grassroots organizations that um, were either built as part of the campaign or that were nascent at the time were basically squashed. Yeah, and look, I mean. Think about when they started the hearings over the question of what later came to be called Obamacare. Just think if Obama, if what Obama might well have done is called up Robert, called up uh, Trumpka, right, and said, "Hey, I know I know times are tough in the labor movement. I know the budgets are limited. Figure out a way to bring two million Americans back to Washington to demand." at the least the public option, but bullshit on the public option to demand national health care. Hell, they were dragging, the Democrats were dragging doctors and nurses out of the hearings who wanted to speak on behalf of single payer. Look, I mean, you know, I've said this in, in other places too. The Republicans do what you expect Republicans to do, right? They want, I mean, they're the ones who are the war, the class war warriors for, for, for the, in politics for the corporations. What is hard for us to quite grasp is that the so-called party of the people, the Democrats, for these past four decades and more, have served the role that the Republicans once upon a time might have. That is, perhaps, a la Eisenhower, tempering the demands of big business, okay? No, now we've got 
and now it's the Democrats who are at best, not even not even Eisenhower Republicans. I mean, over and over again, they turn their backs on working people. Yeah, and, I mean, it's become more of a uh, it's a corporatist party. So yeah. it's not it, it's it's in the service of corporations with a with a liberal sort of social outlook or, or a cultural outlook. That's it. Right. Um, As the, I think it was the populists who said back in the late 19th century, you know, we're up against the money power and the money powers these last 40 years took over the Democratic Party. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate you, uh, you, you, you doing this. Um, it's always it's always great to hear whether I mean, I can't believe I'm actually uh, facilitating this. Usually I'm just watching you <laughs> do your thing. This is really great. Um, but the, this is fun. Listen, I mean, I, I first of all, it's nice to get revved up in the evening. Right. <laughs> it and, is. And 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 also, you know, especially. Look, we are really at a crisis time in America, and I don't think it's just a matter of vote blue no matter who. I think it's a matter of of really doing everything we can to get Bernie Sanders the nomination. But moreover, look, if it doesn't happen with Bernie, that mean that doesn't mean that that it, we never we don't reach the end of history in that sense. The, the momentum that we've developed, we need to sustain because let's suppose it's let's suppose it's Elizabeth Warren. And for the record, I like Elizabeth Warren. I just don't think she can win the win the presidency. I think Bernie Sanders can. But let's suppose it's Elizabeth Warren. Well, then the idea is she's a top down kind of political figure. Okay, she's got great plans, but the grassroots is Bernie's thing. So what we need to do is we need to push the likes of Elizabeth Warren, if she gets the nomination, to be more like Bernie Sanders. I mean that sincerely. Whereas with Bernie Sanders, we just keep pushing him so that he can pursue the kinds of things that we know he wants to do because this is what he's wanted to do for the past 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. And we say all the time here that, you know, the election cycle is one thing, but it doesn't stop. So, you know, whatever happens, we're going to keep we're going to keep back at it, whether, you know, it's like Randolph convincing FDR to do what he was probably going to do anyway, um, or um, or maybe scaring others. Yeah. And by the way, a footnote to that is 1963 March on Washington in Washington, D.C. was the culmination of. A. Philip Randolph's March on Washington movement. The 1963 March, the idea for that is A. Philip Randolph, that's his, it's his movement. It's the arc from 41 to 63. Martin Luther King was an invited speaker. He had nothing to do with organizing the march. It was A. Philip Randolph and, and the folks around him. And by the way, it would never even have happened if it wasn't for Walter Ruther, the labor leader with the UAW. It was the UAW that helped underwrite the buses and the transportation to get 250,000 people to Washington for a march for jobs and for freedom. So, I mean, the struggle, the struggle doesn't happen, as you just said, at election time or the campaign season. The struggle has to be built, which is why Bernie should have given us the narrative in 2016. He's now affording us the narrative. Our task is to take hold of our history and make America radical again. Buy the book, everybody, from Zero Books. I want to thank once again uh, Professor Harvey J.K. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It was a blast. Thank you.